0: Welcome to Plato's Pod where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is March 12, 2023, and I'm your host, James Myers. It's a pleasure to be joined by members of the Toronto, Calgary, and Chicago philosophy meetup groups. Whether you've been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. To contribute your thoughts, please use the raise hands feature in Zoom, To keep the discussion flowing and ensure everyone has a chance to speak, I'll call on you in the order that hands are raised, using first name only. I've suggested three themes and excerpts from today's reading, which covers from 328E to 348C of Plato's Protagoras, and these are posted on the shared drive linked to the event notice on meetup.com. We can focus on these or any of the other themes, and for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. As we exchange thoughts on today's reading, I'll briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread. After we finish recording in two hours, I welcome anyone who wishes to remain online for Plato's Café, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. In today's reading of the Protagoras, we'll begin by focusing on the dialogue between Socrates and the Sophist, which follows their introductory speeches that we heard two weeks ago. In these speeches, Socrates set out the case that virtue is not teachable, while Protagoras argued that virtue can be taught and that he is qualified to teach it. Neither, however, provided a definition of virtue. And since this is Plato, we won't be surprised when we get to the end of the dialogue in two weeks and discover that virtue remains undefined. In any event, it appears that both Socrates and Protagoras agree on the importance of being a knowledgeable consumer of teaching. The reason for this, according to Protagoras, is that sophists sometimes disguise their skills, and, as he stated, the masses, needless to say, perceive nothing but merely sing the tune their leaders announce. Socrates set out his reason at the outset of the dialogue in warning young Hippocrates to understand the limits of both the subject and the teacher's knowledge before entrusting his soul to absorb the teaching. At the outset of today's readings, which I'll try again to present with as much drama as I can, Socrates asks Protagoras whether virtue is one thing or many, to which Protagoras responds that virtue is a thing that is composed of parts which are different from each other but similar in their combination. They proceed to examine the parts that Protagoras says belong to virtue, with Socrates calling out a contradiction of opposites in the words of the sophist. Socrates also highlights a necessity that, to be effective, a teacher must modify his teaching to suit the abilities of the student, brevity being Socrates' requirement as a student as opposed to the long-windedness of Protagoras the teacher. We'll end today with Protagoras' contention that the greatest part of a man's education is to understand the words of poets which leads to the examination that Socrates and Protagoras subsequently apply to a particular poem by Simonides. In their dialectic on Simonides poem, Socrates establishes that Protagoras failed to understand the context in which it had been written, and that the poet did not contradict himself, as Protagoras believes. So some really interesting questions and points were made in our discussion two weeks ago that we should return to in the context of today's reading. As we try to establish the limits of virtue, do we see it as one of Plato's indivisible forms, or do we see it as something that divides into parts? In other words, is there a first principle for virtue, and is virtue something that is rational? Also, we could return to Steve's question of how we can equip leaders of a democracy to govern with knowledge, and how anyone else can become virtuous if they are not taught about virtue. As well, two weeks ago, several participants questioned whether virtue is not a thing with fixed limits in time, but is instead subject to differing interpretations over time within families and cultures. In that respect, Steve's example of virtue, as it might have been understood in ancient times by warrior cultures like that of Genghis Khan, was particularly striking. Should virtue in such societies and times be taught as the art of pillaging, killing, and subjugation, Will virtue in our modern societies be taught as consisting of perhaps compromise, understanding, and reduction of suffering? The question of the connection between time and virtue, which will become especially relevant in two weeks when we finish the dialogue, comes to the forefront in today's reading when the sophist hippias makes the statement that, quote, convention, which tyrannizes the human race, often constrains us contrary to nature, unquote. So is virtue tied to social conventions at different times and therefore teachable in that context? Or is it more universal and timeless? So let's keep these points and questions in mind as we follow the lines of argument in today's reading, which I will begin at 328e. So let me just turn on the screen sharing. So this is 328 and Socrates is speaking here. Protagoras ended his virtuoso performance here and stopped speaking. I was entranced and just looked at him for a long time as if he were going to say more. I was still eager to listen, but when I perceived that he had really stopped, I pulled myself together and, looking at Hippocrates, barely managed to say, Son of Apollodorus, how grateful I am to you for suggesting that I come here. It is marvelous to have heard from Protagoras what I have just heard. Formerly, I used to think that there was no human practice by which the good become good, but now I am persuaded that there is, except for one small obstacle, which Protagoras will explain away, I am sure, since he has explained away so much already. Now, you could hear a speech similar to this from Pericles or some other competent orator if you happen to be present when one of them was speaking on this subject, but try asking one of them something and they will be as unable to answer your question or to ask one of their own as a book would be. Question the least little thing in their speeches and they will go on like bronze bowls that keep ringing for a long time after they've been struck and prolong the sound indefinitely unless you dampen them. That's how these orators are. Ask them one little question and and they're off on another long distance speech. But Protagoras here, while perfectly capable of delivering a beautiful long speech as we have just seen, is also able to reply briefly when questioned and to put a question and then wait for and accept the answer. Rare accomplishments, these. Now then, Protagoras, I need one little thing, and then we'll have it all, if you'll just answer me this. You say that virtue is teachable, and if there's any human being who can persuade me of this, it's you. But there is one thing that you said that troubles me, and maybe you can satisfy my soul. You said that Zeus sent justice and a sense of shame to the human race. You also said at many points in your speech that justice and temperance and piety and all these things were somehow collectively one thing, virtue. Could you go through this again and be more precise? Is virtue a single thing with justice and temperance and piety its parts or are the things I have just listed all names for a single entity? This is what still intrigues me. This is an easy question to answer, Socrates, he replied virtue is a single entity and the things you are asking about are its parts parts as in the parts of a face mouth nose eyes and ears or parts as in the parts of gold where there is no difference except for size between parts or between the parts and the whole in the former sense i would think socrates as the parts of the face are to the whole face then tell me this do some people have one part and some another or do you necessarily have all the parts if you have any one of them By no means, since many are courageous but unjust, and again, many are just but not wise. Then these are also parts of virtue, wisdom and courage? Absolutely, and wisdom is the greatest part. Is each of them different from the others? Yes. And does each have its own unique power or function? In the analogy to the parts of the face, the eye is not like the ear, nor is its power or function the same, and this applies to the other parts as well. They are not like each other in power or function or any other way. Is this how it is with the parts of virtue? Are they unlike each other, both in themselves and in their powers or functions? It is not clear to me that this must be the case, if our analogy is valid. Yes, it must be the case, Socrates. Then none of the other parts of virtue is like knowledge or like justice or like courage or like temperance or like piety? Agreed. Come on then and let's consider what kind of thing each of these is. Here's a good first question. Is justice a thing or is it not a thing? I think it is. What about you? I think so, too. The next step, then. Suppose someone asked us, Protagoras and Socrates, tell me about this thing you just named justice. Is it itself just or unjust? My answer would be that it is just. What would your verdict be, the same as mine or different? The same. Then justice is the sort of thing that is just. That's how I would reply to the questioner. Would you also? Yes. Suppose he questioned us further. Do you also say that there is a thing called piety? We would say we do, right? Right. Do you say that this too is a thing? We would say we do, wouldn't we? That too. Do you say that this thing is by nature impious or pious? Myself, I would be irritated with this question, and I would say, quiet man, how could anything else be pious if piety itself is not? What about you? Wouldn't you answer in the same way? Absolutely. Suppose he asks us next, then what about what you said a little while ago? Maybe I didn't hear you right. I thought you two said that the parts of virtue are related to each other in such a way that no part resembles any other. I would answer, there's nothing wrong with your hearing, except that I didn't say that. Protagoras here said that in answer to my question. If he were to say then, is he telling the truth, Protagoras? Are you the one who says that one part of virtue is not like another? Is this dictum yours? How would you answer him? I would have to admit it, Socrates. Well, if we accept that, Protagoras, what are we going to say if he asks next, isn't piety the sort of thing that is just, and isn't justice the sort of thing that is pious? Or is it the sort of thing which is not pious? Is piety the sort of thing to be not just, and therefore unjust, and justice impious? What are we going to say to him? Personally, I would answer both that justice is pious and piety is just, and I would give him the same answer on your behalf, if you would let me, that justice is the same thing as piety, or very similar, and... Most emphatically that justice is the same kind of thing as piety and piety as justice. What do you think? Will you veto this answer or are you in agreement with it? It's not so absolutely clear a case to me, Socrates, as to make me grant that justice is pious and piety is just. Don't do that to me. It's not this if you want or if you agree business I want to test. It's you and me I want to put on the line and I think the argument will be tested best if we take the if out. Well, all right, justice does have some resemblance to piety. Anything at all resembles any other thing in some way. There's a certain way in which white resembles black and hard soft and so on for all the polar opposites. And the things we were just talking about as having different powers or functions and not being the same kinds of things, the parts of the face, these resemble each other in a certain way. And they are like each other. So by this method, you could prove if you wanted to, that these things too are all like each other but it's not right to call things similar because they resemble each other in some way, however slight, or to call them dissimilar because there is some slight point of dissimilarity. I was taken aback and said to him, do you consider the relationship between justice and piety really only one of some slight similarity? So that was the rather long reading that starts today's session, and... Um, There's a a few points that Socrates raises in there, that both Socrates and Protagoras raise in there, and are there any responses on it, in particular the question whether virtue is one thing or a combination of parts? And Socrates here is saying, well, if it's a combination of parts, then how do each of the parts relate to each other? Are they different or, or are they the same? That's why he's talking about, you know, is justice the same thing as piety, or is justice one thing unto itself? And, you know, is this a problem that we get into in terms of measuring virtue? If we measure virtue, we have to know the limits of what is virtue. And here, Protagoras is saying virtue is something that consists of multiple things, so we have to then know the limits of each of those things, courage, piety, justice, we would have to know the limits of each of those things, and then put them together as one thing called virtue. And somehow in this combination, we would get the thing that we call virtue as a combination of individual things. So virtue is, is in Protagoras's view, uh, some sort of a compound, where in Socrates' view, I think he's, he's questioning that. So what do we think about that idea? Is virtue one thing, or is it multiple things? So it really goes to the question of how it's taught then, doesn't it? If it's one thing or multiple things, if it's multiple things then maybe it could be taught in each of its components there could be a session on justice there could be a session on courage and then you could put all of those different teachings together and then say that all of those things combine to justice and I guess you'd then have to say what is it that causes them to combine as justice We'll start with Cody and then Nuria
1: yeah
2: and uh, there's an S on that as well Cody okay. uh, nice. so just just like a a fault to, to see the same thing now let's work on facts we know for a fact right a single wave was produced and is a single wave a single entity right but yet a wave is a set of seven there's a, there's a seven waves in a set right and yet the whole set is part of the ocean so is it is is one wave one wave is one wave part of a set or is one wave part, you know, the ocean? So to me, it's all part of the same wet stuff. It's it's just regardless of what it looks like or what it resembles. It might resemble every other wave, but I guarantee like a fingerprint, every single wave on this planet that's ever rolled across any kind of burrow of water is unique in like sound dimensions. Every aspect of that wave is unique as a fingerprint. And yet there's, Billions and billions of waves all rolling across regardless of wet stuff. But they're all individual, but they're all part of the same set or sets. And they're all part of the same wet stuff, mm. which when you think of the water, all water's connected somewhere, right? Every piece of water on the land or on mountains, in the ocean, seas, rivers, ditches, it's all connected somehow. So I'm just kind of like wondering about that.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: That's an interesting analogy and way of, of looking at it. Uh, and so maybe if I understand your point, it's uh, you're comparing virtue to some sort of an ocean that's combined of these different waves or, or points. And that's an interesting uh, analogy, I think that's something that we should consider is so if virtue is an ocean in that analogy, then do we know the limits of the ocean? Do we know the causes of the ocean? and how would it be taught, I guess, you know, to bring it back to the question uh, of this dialogue, which is whether virtue is teachable. So it's, it's an interesting analogy to think of, and I like that comparison, something definitely to think about. So thank you. We'll go to Nuria and then Eva.
4: Well, I think this problem has several layers of complexity, starting with we haven't defined what is virtue, The other day, we were thinking if virtue changes with time, changes with where you are, so that will also probably change the components. Here we are giving an answer based on what they understood as virtue that isn't defined, and the components that they think that are virtue. But I have been thinking about this, and maybe I'm biased because I like writing. And since I like writing, I like using very specific words. For me, one word can be a synonym, but not exactly the same because they give a different idea, different feeling, so we consider them differently. And those things, I think, affect how we think about things. So I have been trying to think how all of the parts, I think Beiju has different parts, but I agree they can be seen as similar and related. Like, for example, because we consider something isn't just, we might use the courage to act on it and to solve something that is wrong in our view. Especially I have been thinking about the position of wisdom in all this because they say that it's the most important virtue of all. And I have been thinking about how they say the conclusion later of Plato is that all of the parts of virtue, they argue it's wisdom in the end, Uh, but I have been thinking if someone, for example, can lack wisdom in a way, for example, betting a lot of money and losing, you wouldn't say that person is wise, but maybe they are also very just, very courageous losing one part of virtue, does it mean that you no longer have virtue? And if we take as correct the promise that wisdom is the most important one, then what does it mean that you lose it? On the other hand, for example, you could be wise but unjust because that unjust act is benefiting you. But is it still virtuous if it's unjust? What if they have taught you that this type of injustice isn't Necessarily wrong because you are not creating a big damage, but it isn't just yes, but it's better fitting you. So, I think there are several points of view depending on how do you consider those things, what is virtue and all. So, I haven't really come to an answer, I only came to have a way more questions. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and, and the question you asked were, were really good questions. I i like the, the way you put that, you know, if you lose one part of virtue. you know so if there is the, if there are these differences between the different parts and you lose one part, but you exercise another part, are you still being virtuous? Say virtue consists of five parts and you only display three parts. are you virtuous? or if you only display two parts and three parts, you're not virtuous. Um, you know that's it's an interesting idea actually. if do you have to exercise all of them in combination to be virtuous? not sure actually that Protagoras is going to answer that question but it's something that we can think of especially in the last section in two weeks that we when we cover that Uh, and especially because you used in your um, example courage versus justice because courage is something that Socrates picks up on particularly because somebody can be courageous but unwise unjust and all of the other things and so uh, maybe courage is something that we need to be particularly cautious of uh, if we consider it to be a part, a distinct part of, of virtue. So yeah, what virtue is, I don't think we'll find out. There's one word I, I think that Socrates uses in today's reading, the word harmony, which really strikes me, and that's something that we can maybe come to uh, later on or in our next session. So so thanks very much for asking those questions. I think they're they're very good to, to focus on, and uh, we'll see where we go with those. Uh, ever
5: thanks and good reading James thank Thank you you. thank you I want to quickly just I like the metaphor of that ocean and waves perspective and I want to bring that perspective to the time and the place of one's personality like I was virtuous when I was 13 for me I was virtuous when I was 20 so my collections of being virtuous or trying to choose the virtuous part of myself, where does that stand? I want to understand virtue with becoming of a person. I don't know if I made it even complicated. It's, I think we'll have to just like find a hook, at least follow that for a while, but like time perspective of one's, uh life and there is virtue in that. Yeah, I'm curious
0: mm-hmm. about that. I think I'm curious about that too and that's something that I think we'll see in 2 weeks that Socrates really begins to address is that the time factor in virtue. And and that relates to, you know, Steve's question I think from 2 weeks ago as well uh, is virtue different at one time from another? So in the ancient uh warrior societies was virtue defined one way differently from the way we define it now? And is that the way virtue is? Is virtue just something that's relative over time? And so, you know, as you said, in your life, you felt virtue at one particular time, felt virtue differently at another point in time. I would say the same thing for my life too. You know, as we learn, maybe we continue to redefine virtue or to refine the definition of virtue. And so maybe it's not something that can be defined at any one specific time. Uh, and that's that's a point, I think, that's, that's kind of key. It'll be very key, I think, to the conclusion in two weeks. So I'm glad you raised it. Thank you for that. And we'll uh, go to Adam.
3: This, this reading, uh, whole, whole reading left me very frustrated with, um, with Socrates because he's setting up virtue in a binary way. It's either the same or it's wholly separate. And it sort of reminds me of like the history of math of like when they finally realized there were irrational numbers, that not all numbers could be whole, and that bothered them a lot to conceive of that. So Socrates doesn't offer any third option or fourth or fifth. He doesn't offer that maybe virtues are, um, have other, a definition of one virtue has other virtues Within it, but but in gradations like proximity, some some of the other virtues are closer than others. Um, He's either saying, no, it's either exactly the same as another virtue or it's the same or or, or it's the opposite of other virtues. And and this problem, he brings up this problem later when he when he talks, Okay, well, then what's what is the opposite uh, of virtues? And it, it's a theme of the same of the same problem. So I, I was really frustrated that he controlled the frame, but only gave two options. And I don't know if anyone else felt that way.
0: Well, thanks and that's a, an interesting perspective actually. the uh, I hadn't thought about that kind of binary concept. and so I guess maybe in the binary is it is a problem that Socrates has asked whether virtue is one thing or many things, and that it could be instead of either one thing or many things it could be a third thing is is that the is that the point
3: um no he he, i mean he he seems to be saying like okay if it's um he he compared it to gold every atom of gold is the same but they just make up the whole body of of gold and so i i think he's saying that like is courage the same as love is is love the same as um whatever the you know the whole list of virtues and he's like well no you know they're they're separate they're you know there's like an eye one's like a nose one's like a mouth so he's like okay so we agree they're separate but then he goes in and he takes advantage of of that separateness argument position by finding similarities right but that's dishonest because or i felt it was dishonest because what if they they are separate but what if uh, each virtue some virtues are closer to other virtue the definition of other virtues than others so like uh the definition of courage might encapsulate two or three other virtues but not all virtues so that he can play a game where he's like well aren't these two virtues the same but then these two virtues are not so therefore haven't I caught you you know in, in a trap where you're saying they're the same virtues are not the same but virtues are the same you know he's he's playing a he's playing a game well I feel like he's play- Playing a game by not offering a third option of the relationship between virtues. I'm sorry, that's long, wouldn't it? But, but yeah,
0: I I think and I think it it helps. um, So if I understand correctly, it's uh, a question of how closely related are each of the individual parts of virtue. Socrates isn't really dealing with the proximity of that relationship he's just yeah so he's just saying that each part is different from the other there's something that differentiates each part and yet they're all part of a whole which is what protagoras is saying but socrates is calling out the differences but not saying where these differences might tie together i think that's a, a good point actually can you have a whole thing called virtue that contains within itself differences but the differences are perhaps somehow controlled that they don't escape that whole thing, which is called virtue, uh, but they allow for some range in the exercise of virtue, Yeah. You know? Okay. That's a great question. Is, so is virtue a range? I, I like that. Yeah. Let, let's explore that. I, I, I hadn't thought about that, but I, I like the way that you put that. So So thank you. Steve, your thoughts?
6: I like Adam have some uh, difficulties with this uh, dialogue, but it's a little different for me. It just left left me flat. I don't uh, I don't get the import of what uh, what they're going through in the discussion, and a lot of it does seem like, you know, Socrates is the uh, young young guy just trying to show off his uh, debating skills against the old sophist master. So a lot of this Back and forth is more just showing off their, you know, debate skills or a contest of skills, which doesn't really give us any philosophical insights. And the whole idea of, you know, the whole topic, the neurological, looking at whether it's holes or parts, you know, we're evaluating the difference. I don't, I just don't get a lot of, uh, of value out of that discussion you know, is it is it a whole or is it a part? Protagoras changes his view at the end and Socrates changes his. So it's like, just, it's just like a, just an exercise and going out and show, and the crowd is, you know, at one point the crowd gets really engaged and is applauding and that. So it's like this, like, this is a performance, which is, you know, fine. That's great. And it's, you know, good for reading and dialogue and all that. But Philosophically, it doesn't really, you know, strike any chords. I mean, at one point they talked about that Zeus sent down the humans justice and a sense of shame. So, again, this is, I think, you know, which I've echoed before, the influence of all the Christian transcribes and translators, you know, over 1,500 years, you know, that's changed this into... Uh, that biases it towards a Christian theology. So the idea that virtue comes from God, you know, does virtue come from God or does the society decide what is virtuous? I mean, you know, in the modern world, if you are a Ukrainian and uh, you send a drone to kill uh, 20 soldiers that are asleep in their bed, you are considered virtuous. But if you did that in Canada or the United States or Spain or, you know, then you you would be considered immoral, having no virtue. So, I mean, that's that's, we're not talking about generations different. If We're talking about in the same time and place. It's the circumstances, you know. So, you know, what is virtuous is, you know, it's just like it's almost like legal codes. What is law abiding? What is ethical? You know, a lot of those things are all decided by the society that you're in in the time. And, you know, and then you people make a judgment on which societies are better than other. But, you know, I don't think the, the idea that there's a one single overpowering virtue that was transmitted uh, to us from the gods up above doesn't seem to have much uh, argument behind it. Thanks.
0: Well, thanks for that. And, and it kind of reminds me of what Protagoras said in his speech about epimetheus and prometheus uh, and epimetheus having made that error and not distributing the powers to humans uh, appropriately and so is is protagoras himself saying that virtue is not something that's given to us by the gods and so is is therefore that's the reason why it's teachable or needs to be taught so yeah and you you raised that uh, the question of kind of where this is going And, uh, you know, whether virtue is something that is something that's relative based on the time, based on the situation, the context, the culture. And I wonder, though, if that is perhaps if we believe that if that is an argument for virtue not being teachable. And and this is I mean, this is the point of this dialogue, the question of whether virtue is teachable or not. So if virtue is something that's dependent on the circumstances and the time and the culture, then how can it be taught? Or if it's taught, can it only be taught by somebody who is of that time, of that culture, and in the same context? Uh, That would maybe be the question. And in this case, we have Protagoras coming into Athens as a foreigner, and he's trying to teach the Athenians about virtue, and so, if virtue is something that's context-based, then is Protagoras equipped to teach it to the Athenians? Steve.
1: Well, I think I
6: think that's a uh, sort of a straw man argument. I mean, if somebody from Japan comes into the United States and teaches virtue the way that you know that it's accepted by our society. That doesn't mean they have to be steep. They have to understand what the societal virtues are. You know, they could have a different virtue for certain things in Japan than than we have here, but you could, or the same thing, you know, a Canadian could go to Japan and teach uh, virtue. You know, it's it's uh, just because it's something that's determined culturally in, in society. That's like anything else. What, how do you, somebody who teaches law you could have somebody that's from a different legal system, say somebody in France, they have the, the you know, laws based on Napoleonic codes, but they could study the laws in the United States or Canada and come here and teach law. They're not going to, you know they'd have to you know, pass the bar and all that to practice law, but you could still be a, a teacher of, of that. The same thing with virtues is really no different than the law. What's, how, how does it differ from the law in uh, that respect?
0: Well, I would say, I mean, the difference there is that the law is something that's written. You know, clearly the legal code of Canada, the U.S., Japan, these are all things that are written. So in terms of teaching, you at least have something to refer to, which is the written legal code. Uh, whereas with virtue, what do you have to refer to if you're teaching it? So if you go into, if I if I wanted to teach virtue in Canada where I live, well, I I have certain knowledge of of the way our society works Um I'm just thinking, you know, for example, politics, like we talked about last time what it is to be a good citizen and whether that's part of the virtue teaching is to teach somebody to become a good citizen. Well, in Canada, part of our political arrangement is that we don't allow corporations to fund uh, political activities, whereas in the US, it is allowed to fund kind of almost without limit. And that's, you know, because I think maybe we can get into the reasons for this, which could be contentious, but maybe it's because in the US, the freedom of speech and the notion of freedom of speech is maybe predominates in that kind of virtue context. Whereas in my country, we have maybe a different perspective on it. So if I were to go to the US and teach political virtue, I would teach it maybe from my context, and then that might not work. Uh, So the question is, you know, if I go into another society, how would I learn what that society's virtues are, either at that particular point or any point in the past? Like, if, if virtue is something that shifts over time, how can anybody teach it if it's always shifting? Or does it necessarily have to remain the same in time? And you know, maybe that's the the that's the point about conventions being the tyranny. That little quote that I read at the beginning. Do we get caught in these conventions if we always teach? virtue the same way in particular society. So I mean you raise a very valid point and I I don't think I I have I don't have an answer to it. I don't know if anybody does but let's let's pursue that point. I think it's a it's a critical point to understand with this. Nuria, your thoughts.
4: Just wanted to point about the question asked of someone coming to teach a moral that so I think if you see it from today's perspective yeah someone can even teach moral today, because we do have certain books about some values. I had a class about it in high school about ethic values that we have today. So you can use a reference. But I think the problem here is more that the morals weren't written. The morals were passed between the family, between the neighbors, maybe. And this person is coming from another country without any previous preparation. I think that's the problem that maybe uh, Socrates sees here, that it is not that he cannot teach it for being for foreigner itself, but for the lack of understanding of their own morals and why he goes to argue so much. But I don't think today that will be a problem. I, th- I think today it will be uh, said a, a bad argument to say that someone from another place cannot teach you moral because we do have sort of reference for what are our values today.
0: And, and that's a fair point. I think too that um, the method of teaching is something that's brought up in this dialogue, and that's something that Socrates calls out. And you know whether it's a foreigner coming into a different society and trying to teach them. Virtue, uh, without having trained enough in that society's moral ways, that could be a problem with the method of teaching. Another problem with the method of teaching that Socrates keeps calling out here is the long winded- windedness of Protagoras. So, certain students like brevity. Certain people, uh, and I can't. It might have actually been you, Nora, the last time that somebody made the point that uh, you know we tend to, when something's long winded, we tend to only remember the last few things that have been said so some students may work better like that and some teachers may be long-winded and put all of the important things at the end some students may work better with brevity and so i think i think maybe socrates in his continual prodding for protagoras to be brief is maybe making a point about a method of teaching so not only do we have a question of how the teacher learns about the virtue of a particular society at a particular time, but we also have a question about how the teacher delivers that teaching. So I think there's a few good points there to to be thought about. Steve, your thoughts?
6: Just a brief counterpoint to just remembering the last thing you said. So I think that it's, it's Socrates, I, I read it as he's just trying to get Protagoras to, uh, to talk in, in form of dialogue that he's best at. Protagoras knows that that's what Socrates' game is, and he's trying to resist them. So it's not for Socrates being all altruistic and trying to do it for the, the good of the student. He's doing it because obviously this is the format that we hear Socrates use all the time. Protagoras is definitely considered one of the brightest people of that era. Uh, a lot of his writings were lost, but you know he's he was considered to be a very uh, important scholar of that time period. So I you know I think it's just a, a debating uh, methodology and that Socrates has to you know threaten to leave and stop his feet and uh, eventually the crowd and everybody gets Protagoras to give in so that Socrates you know has his chance to use his uh, style of uh, of debate that he's the best at.
0: Thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, certainly when the other sophists in attendance get involved and they try to broker some sort of understanding between this kind of game playing that goes on between Socrates and Protagoras in terms of the method of delivering the knowledge, it's also interesting to witness the different approaches of the different sophists in attendance. You know, Prodicus has one way of trying to mediate this impasse about brevity. And uh you know others have different ways, like Alcibiades and so it it is interesting to witness just these different approaches and maybe in sh- in showcasing those different approaches as well as this maybe game playing between Socrates and Protagoras in terms of the best method like Socrates has a particular way of teaching, which is to annoy people by asking all sorts of questions and leading them to think that he knows or asking questions that people think that he knows the answer and he's just playing with them. Um, that's maybe Socrates way of teaching, whereas Protagoras has a different way of teaching and then we find out that these other Sophists and attendants have different approaches as well. So maybe the lesson here is that perspective, individual perspective is very important and therefore, in virtue is individual perspective of virtue important too like is and is virtue is virtue therefore dependent on individual perspectives? And if it is, Is it teachable? Um, So these are all good questions. All good questions. Adam, your thoughts.
3: Uh, I just wanted to uh, confirm that I got a similar reading with with Steve, that Socrates was being like a a prosecutor in a court case. And I don't know if anyone has ever watched or had a habit of watching court cases or or maybe the the scene from a few good men where uh the the defense tries to lead the general into you know making a, a a mistake so that he can trap him and you know win his case or even when you watch sometimes dishonest interview techniques where the interviewer in the media is trying to trap the uh the person uh with leading you know uh things so socrates I, i'm with I, I understand and I identify with what Steve is saying that Socrates seems like he's angling for uh, prosecutorial advantage, mm-hmm. controlling uh, and, and, and trying to corner him.
0: That's a really interesting way of putting a prosecutorial advantage. Yeah, and that's I think this is a common thing with Socrates that does annoy people. And I don't know whether we can see through that uh, to the points that he's trying to make. Maybe on the other hand, Protagoras is the sophist who has claimed, and we saw this in the Theaetetus, who has claimed that man is a measure of things. So he has claimed something rather bold, that, that man has the absolute ability to measure things. And so here, Protagoras has said that virtue is a composite of parts. And so Socrates is going to lead him to say, well, how do we measure the limits of those parts? And so it's a fair question to put to Protagoras. And if we're going to teach anything, we should know the limits of what we're teaching. And as as Socrates warned Hippocrates in the first part that we covered, beware, like if you go for teaching, understand the limits of what you're being taught and the limits of the teacher, because it's your soul at stake. you're, You're absorbing this teaching you really have to know, you have to be a knowledgeable consumer, is what he said. So I think knowledgeable means knowing the limits. And we'll see very definitely at the end of the dialogue, this question of measurement is, is really a focus, as it was in the Philobus that we covered last month. The question of measurement is essential. So uh, this is, I think, why Socrates is angling this way. He's trying to see if Protagoras is actually good to his claim to be able to measure things uh, better than any other man. So we'll see. But maybe he, Socrates is being a little overly offensive about the approach and and coy about it too. So. so we'll see if we can overlook that or whether we find flaws in that. We'll see who wins the debate. So thanks for those points. And maybe that then take us to the second part of the reading that I selected. This is from 332d to 333c. And this is where Socrates gets into this question of measurement, I think, specifically. And it comes up in the context of opposites. So here we should remember what Socrates said in the phaedo, that everything comes to be in opposites. And so there is this kind of binary approach, I think, to things, you know, Adam, to use the, the word that you said before. There are two limits to everything, opposites. And so if there are differences within these components of virtue, then where do we? how do we define those differences? And we need to look for the opposites to define those differences. We don't know what the absolute limit of anything is, especially virtue, but if we can at least identify the opposites, then we can understand how those differences fit together. And this is, again, why I put on the cover page quote, uh, and I mentioned it last time, the quote from the Cratylus, where Socrates said 425a to be in the Cratylus, our job, if indeed we are to examine these things with scientific knowledge, is to divide where they put together so as to see whether or not both the primary and derivative names are given in accord with nature, for any other way of connecting names to things homogenes is inferior and unsystematic. So maybe if there is this, um, you know, Adam used the, the idea of there's differences within the components, but Maybe they tie together somehow. Let's keep maybe in in mind this quote from the Catalyst, where if if they do tie together, we have to know where they put together. Where they put together. And this is why Socrates goes looking for the opposite. So this is 332b to 333c. Socrates starts, Suppose we now count up our points of agreement. Have we agreed that there is one opposite thing for one thing and no more? Yes, we have. And that what is done in an opposite way is done from opposites? Yes. And have we agreed that what is done foolishly is done in a way opposite to what is done temperately? We have. And that what is done temperately is done from temperance, and what is done foolishly is done from folly? Agreed. And it's true that if it's done in an opposite way, it is done from an opposite? Yes. And one is done from temperance, the other from folly? Yes. In an opposite way? Yes. From opposites? Yes. Then folly is the opposite of temperance? It seems so. Well then, do you recall our previous agreement that folly is the opposite of wisdom? Yes, I do. And that one thing has only one opposite? Of course. Then which of these propositions should we abandon, Protagoras? The proposition that for one thing, there is only one opposite, or the one stating that wisdom is different from temperance and that each is a part of virtue and that in addition to being distinct, they are dissimilar, both in themselves and in their powers or functions, just like the parts of a face? Which should we abandon? The two statements are dissonant. They are not in harmony with one another. How could they be, if there is one and only one opposite for each thing, while folly, which is a single thing, evidently has two opposites, wisdom and temperance? Isn't this how it stands, Protagoras? He assented, although very grudgingly, and I continued. Wouldn't that make wisdom and temperance one thing? And a little while ago, it looks like justice and piety were nearly the same thing. Come on, Protagoras, we can't quit now, not before we've tied up these loose ends. So does someone who acts unjustly seem temperate to you in that he acts unjustly? I would be ashamed to say that is so, Socrates, although many people do say it. Then shall I address myself to them or to you? If you like, why don't you debate the majority position first? It makes no difference to me, provided you give me the answers whether it is your own opinion or not. I am primarily interested in testing the argument, although it may happen both that the questioner, myself, and my respondent wind up being tested. So he actually ends this part where he he says he's willing to be uh, tested, he's willing to be challenged, he's willing to be overturned in his view, Socrates is, and what he's really looking for is this testing of limits. And, and, you know, that that's probably a fair thing. So they'll start by looking at the majority position first, I guess. And, and that's maybe one way of testing limits. But Socrates says he's not questioning. It's not a case for Socrates of winning the argument. It's, it's a case for testing the limits, I think. so. So what do we think about the idea that for each thing, there is only one opposite? They started by establishing that folly is the opposite of wisdom. And then Protagoras makes the claim that folly is also the opposite of temperance. So if it's the opposite of both wisdom and temperance, does that make wisdom and temperance the same thing, in that each thing can only have one opposite? So if wisdom and temperance are different things, but they have the same opposite, are they really different things? Here we're trying to establish the measure of wisdom and temperance. What makes them different? Nuria.
4: Well, I think this part clearly shows what people were referring before of how uh, Socrates is interrogating, basically trying to put Protagoras in a bad position, leading him with questions to prove his point. But I think that Protagoras commits, uh, fails when he accepts that there is just one opposite thing because we have synonyms and we have... I don't remember enough for the opposite but we have various words to refer to the same thing so we can also say that what is done foolishly is done stupidly unwisely uh, since we have synonyms we have to accept i think that things can be similar related or uh, absorb part of the meaning or of other words, but they have different tones, they have different um, intentions too. So they are not the same, but they are close. And I think if he will have not accepted that there is just one opposite, if he will have said, no, things can have various uh, opposites because we have words that have similar meanings yet different tones to them, he will not have allowed uh, Socrates to put him on that position of having to admit that one thing can have different opposites. I think there is where Protagoras' problems uh, is.
0: I hadn't thought about that before. That's a really interesting perspective that Protagoras made an error in agreeing that there is only one opposite for things. And especially, as you say, because we use words in a different way. Which is actually a really interesting connection to what we'll see when we get towards the end of today's session when they talk about the poem of Simonides, because Simonides used a few words that we understand differently. So, one of them is being and becoming, and the other word is hard. And Socrates calls into question, as Protagoras claims that he knows everything about this poem by Simonides and he knows how to interpret Simonides' intentions with this poem. That he knows what Simonides meant by being, by becoming, and by the word hard. And Socrates, I think, fairly successfully challenges Protagoras on those points. But you do highlight that there are differences in the use of language. And so I guess then the question is who is qualified to distinguish these differences? You know, again, we're looking for the limits of the thing we call justice, the limits of the thing we call temperance, the limits of the thing we call courage. And then how all of these limits both are the same and the different and how they tie up to this one thing that we call virtue, but we don't know how to define that thing that we call virtue. We, we seem to know how to define, or we seem to have a closer idea of what its components are, if indeed it consists of components, but then there are these differences and interpretations and different meanings of words. How do we tie it all up together, Nouria?
4: I think um, that is very complicated because even if a society can have closer ideas of what it is virtue for them and they are transmitted among people, uh, inside of each individual, they can still have different understanding of where the limits of those same agreed words and virtues are. For someone, something that is uh, unjust and it's really, really unjust. Another person could be like, it's a bit unjust, but it's not such a big problem. I think it's something highly subjective and why I also understand, I think it was uh, Adam and Steve that were having a problem with this whole discussion of why is it necessary to define all these? Why is Socrates having to worry about All these, uh, and it felt more like he just wanted to show off because I think it's something so subjective that even if we can agree on the general idea of it is not okay to steal, it is not okay to lie, or whatever, uh, there are going to always be uh, more subtleness, some more subjective parts that is up to each person to decide. And when a problem arises from those having ideas, then we have to solve it by speaking and explaining our points of view. We cannot have this one answer, I think.
0: And that maybe is a question of um, that process of dialectic that Socrates is trying to get them to engage in, which is this uh, back and forth and speaking to distinguish what the differences are and to find some, maybe some common ground and a first principle, which I understand, I mean, the way I understand dialectic is that it's looking for the first principle. So if there are these differences in interpretation and this high degree of subjectivity, as you said, then who is qualified to be a teacher of this? And who is qualified to teach the teacher? And who is qualified to teach the teachers of the teachers? You know, this regression, like if there is a first principle of virtue, and somehow we're able to find some first principle that overcomes the sub subjectivity, and we find a way to teach that first principle. And then then we can equip the students to make their own judgments, but at least we've taught them about the first principle. How are we to find that out? I guess without dialectic maybe it's not possible with dialectic which is what Socrates is looking for maybe we'll get closer to that Uh, but is there in fact a first principle here that's teachable and again you know the purpose of this dialogue is to question whether virtue is teachable so you know maybe we have something that's subjective and something subjective well we know we know from modern experience we can look at people teaching subjective views as if they're absolutes we have to be aware of we have to be cautious of those types of people, but maybe uh, wise people like Protagoras is much better qualified to teach a subjective topic such as as virtue. Um, so it's a good question, I don't know. Steve, your thoughts?
6: On the base of that argument that there has we have to find a first principle and you need to have you know some ultimate teacher to teach the teaching. That's the same. that's, again, the idea that there is a first principle on this, that it was handed down from the God or the gods, you know, it is subjective. It is based on what's going on in society and the people that teach it, they teach it to the best of their abilities. Some are going to be criticized. That's why you have teacher reviews. That's why the people that are reviewing have teacher reviews. So you try and, as a, you know, a society, you try and do the best you can and you try to set the things in place that you know, your society works in the best way that you think is possible. And sometimes you fail and sometimes you don't, but that's the idea that there's some ultimate uh, virtue out there is still, there's been no arguments presented to uh, justify that as far as I can see.
0: It's true, and I, I would agree. I mean, that they certainly, they have not identified any first principle and maybe that's what, what Socrates was hoping that they could do by looking, uh, by taking a dialectic approach. Whether the first principle came from the gods or from something else, I don't know if the dialogue ever gets into that part of it. But but yeah, definitely, you know, is there a first principle? Now, if there isn't a first principle and and if it is teachable to the best of one's ability and teachers can be monitored and and all of that, then I guess the question is, do the teachers teach the individual parts of virtue or do they teach the whole of virtue? Where would they start? And if they're teaching the parts of virtue, courage, temperance, and all of that, how do they tie them together and into what, what do they call virtue? And then the other thing I, I think is this question of convention. So if the teaching of virtue is based on accepted social norms Well, we have one particular accepted social norm now where in the Western world, at least women are allowed to vote. A hundred years ago, it wasn't the case. So was it virtuous what they did before when they didn't allow women to vote? Are we more virtuous now? If the teaching of virtue had been restricted to convention and the teachers had been vetted by all of their peers and only teachers who taught that it was virtuous that women not vote 100 years ago, then would women have ever received the vote? Or how how would we ever change our concept of virtue if the teachers are tied to some sort of social conventions? I don't know whether, Steve, if you have any thoughts on that, or if anybody else has any thoughts on that. Nuria.
4: Well, I think that, The text itself partially answers that because before all this, they uh, mentioned that for the Greeks, all those virtues are already men, given by uh, Zeus, if I remember correctly. Personally, I don't think that it was Zeus that gave it to us. I think that somehow by growing up, we realized Things that are okay and that are not okay. I think part are learned by seeing how others react, but I think other parts are learned by how we feel. Like we don't feel right when we are lied, but since we are being taught at the same time, it is hard to discern if it is fully because of something inside that tells us, "Oh, this is wrong," or because we are being taught that. But I think even if teachers were to only teach a certain way, in the end, people might question those ideas, any questioning those ideas and spreading them and debating them without having a figure being the one saying, no, this is what is right and this is what is wrong. But talking between people, maybe they could come to the agreement of, Maybe not letting women vote is not okay. Maybe we should change that.
0: <laughs> yeah, that that's key is learning from each other. I think over time, and you you introduced the time element into that comment, which I think was was important. And that, and certainly we'll see that in the conclusion where the time element is very important. That we we don't necessarily want to get stuck in time. And if there's any teaching. You know, maybe it needs to be flexible enough that we recognize that the teacher and the students both recognize that things can change over time. And then maybe what they need to do is find some general parameters that we could call virtuous and just maybe teach those general parameters, but then not say any specific things within those parameters. Like women not voting is virtuous or pillaging is virtuous, as uh, Steve used in the example two weeks ago. Uh, So instead of teaching specific points of virtue, maybe it's a question then of teaching the boundaries of virtue and understanding how to stay within those boundaries. And then that comes to the question of then what are the boundaries of virtue? Uh, Is virtue one thing? Does it have one boundary, one limit? Or does it consist of multiple limits, you know, of these five things that Protagoras is saying it consists of? So then we would need to teach those five limits and then put them together, find some sort of equation that puts those things together so that we then know the combined limit of the thing that's called virtue. Adam.
3: I just have a question. Um, so d- just to not lose track of what the the goal is, Socrates says, you know, he says, regarding is it whether or not it is teachable? Uh, I have a question, and then he went on this whole thing about partitions and divisions and definitions. So is Socrates' argument that it's only teachable if we know the dimensions and differences, and conversely, if we can't even define the dimensions and differences, it is therefore not teachable? Like, is what is the structure of his argument as—what what, what is the purpose of this— diving into this topic as it relates to whether or not virtue is teachable.
0: I'll take others' opinions on that too, but I think it's, as you said, that for something to be taught, you need to know what it is that's being taught, which is the warning that he gave to Hippocrates at the outset. Understand what it is you're looking to be taught and understand the qualifications of the teacher that you're going to. So here... Protagoras has said virtue is teachable, but he hasn't really defined virtue. He's given us words, but as Noria said, words can have different meanings. And so when he says justice, well, you know, somebody, I have a particular view of justice. Somebody else, you know, my neighbor might have a different view of justice. And so unless you can define what justice is, then how can you hire a teacher of justice? And, and that's maybe where, as I was saying, maybe it's a question then of Defining some sort of parameters to the thing we call justice or the thing we call virtue, and then teaching just what those boundaries are, and not teaching the specific types of justice or the specific types of virtue, because those might be changeable over time. Those could be subject to interpretation using different words and all of that. So Socrates is very much saying, understand the limits and under and find a teacher who understands those limits. But until we understand the limits, how do we know it's teachable? What is it that's being taught? So, thanks for that question, Steve.
6: Going back to Adam's original problem with the dialogue, I still it does not seem that you know what we're discussing is going to bring us any closer to any philosophical understanding of you know anything per se. I don't want I don't want to be that broad. It just seems to be not a very rich topic. The people in this dialogue, historically, what would be considered virtuous when they're teaching, if you're saying that they're going to teach what virtue is and the limits of it, but you have to realize these are a society where the democracy, where the only people that could vote are men, property holders, that uh, women had no rights, the Parents could do whatever they liked with their children. There was slavery. Teachers would take on young boys as their lovers, and this was their methodology of teaching them. So it's like this whole society, you know, how could they tell us what is a virtue? What is virtue? What's the limits of virtue? It's a totally different time and place. and I don't see what they're teaching us about virtue or about the investigation of virtue it's virtue would be like any other topic, Canadian history, American history, world history. My world history teacher, how do I know he's a good world history teacher? Does he really, did he really study when he was in college or was he out, you know, partying all the time? How does he know that about anything? That's about it's the same, virtue would be the same as as any other topic. And say it's a, a rhetorical skills, the same thing. Yeah, yeah, you should be a good consumer. Yeah, you should d- do your research and try and find out, you know, if the college you're going to does a good job, how many people graduate and things like that. But putting virtue in a category or class higher above everything else, I just don't get the value in examining it uh, to that degree. Thanks.
0: Thanks for putting that in perspective, you know, in terms of the time, certainly their concept of virtue 2,400 years ago is different from our concept of virtue now. And so, yeah, you'd say, well, what what do we have to learn from their approach to virtue? Well, I guess, firstly, they don't ever tell us what virtue is. So that's important. So they're, they're not telling us what we should think about virtue. I think what they're trying to show is how we we should go about approaching a question like virtue, like what is virtue? As to the relevance of it, I think the world now is at a point where we are questioning each other's virtues quite heavily. And I think that's leading to some very significant dissonance in societies. Societies are polarizing. There, there's, you know, they, they call it the right now. I don't know where that definition of the, the right has never been defined to me, or conservatives have never been defined properly. What they call conservative now is not what was called conservative when I was growing up. But there are these camps, you know, there's liberals, there's conservatives, there's, uh, and, and it's all being polarized. and each has its own sense of virtue. And I think it's actually a very critical question for today, uh, is to understand how we come to some sort of common ground on this important question of what virtue is. Because we really are seeing some very, very significant dissonance in our political cultures and our social cultures from this very question of what virtue is. Uh, But I think more generally, how do we approach any question about something that's not defined? And so whether it's virtue or whether it's anything else that's not defined, there's lots of concepts that are abstract and not defined. And so maybe we're learning through this process How we can at least think about the limits of those undefined things or the the boundaries of those undefined things. And we can also think about the dialectical process which we're undergoing now with each other. You raise points, we discuss them, we see if we can come to some common ground. And that's an important thing to approach any topic. So, whether it's virtue or or anything else. But I, I would submit that virtue is quite important today. Now, not that Plato knew 2,400 years ago that. He wrote wrote this and that on March 12, 2023, people would be discussing the relevance of his particular point. But you know, maybe it's been a consistent theme throughout human history. And maybe that's why he picked the question of virtue, not just for this dialogue, but also for the Mino. And then he picked knowledge as something that goes throughout all of his dialogue. So, and you know, in the Theotetus, Protagoras, as I said before, was said to uh, say that man is the measure of all things. So how do we measure things, whether it's virtue or anything else? Measurement is an important question. It's something that we do, I think, from one moment to the next. Doria, your thoughts?
4: I just wanted to add aside side of what you said, that maybe it could help to understand that, uh, well, it seems people are very antagonizing if someone has different political ideas and maybe it could help to understand that political ideas doesn't mean that someone is more or less virtuous necessarily in general just by having a tag of right and left without knowing the person and the actual thoughts about different topics but i think that in a way virtue is important because in short it is about what is right and what is wrong and what is right and what is wrong for us defines our laws defines if we are going to make a protest asking for certain rights or asking to ban certain things so i think today is important i like that they don't um completely encapsulate this is virtue and this is immovable. they just express the idea they have at the moment and it can help us think about what virtue is now but I think that one thing that maybe I disagree with with the way it is presented in the text is that they try to put very clear limits to something that as we have said I think maybe should be more of a spectrum of like inside these limits is okay. It's like, for example, we have a speed limit on the driveway. And there is also a a slow limit, you cannot go under certain speed, because it can also be dangerous for other people. But there is a range that we tolerate, they are not going to be like, Oh, you were one kilometer per hour above the limit, here's your ticket for that. So I think in Not in all topics, because there are things that maybe we should think that are always wrong. Like, for example, killing someone, I think is always wrong. Uh, But in other topics, maybe we can have a more open idea. And maybe this discussion, they are having tries to put everything as very black or white, very uh, binary, as it was said before. So I think it helps in thinking about it. Maybe it helps to bring it to more modern days and more. How, if we disagree, we can think of it as how we don't want to see virtue. We don't want to see it as A or B. We don't want to see it as this or that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you use the word spectrum, which I think you know recalls what Adam said about the range of of virtue earlier. So you know the the question would remain then if we if we're going to engage people in teaching virtue, to make us better people. How do we find teachers who are qualified and who keep that spectrum open appropriately so that we're not constrained or tyrannized by convention, which is what Prodicus says at around 338a. Uh, We don't want to be tyrannized by convention. We want to have some agency in outcomes. So how do we find the teachers who are going to allow us to maintain a reasonable spectrum for virtue. I, I like the idea of a spectrum for virtue. I I, I think maybe it's not one thing. And, and maybe, as I said in the introduction or, or close to the beginning, that Socrates used the word harmony, and he also then used the word dissonance. And maybe it's a question of finding some sort of harmony. So as we're Maybe not disagreeing with each other, but seeing things from a different perspective. How do we harmonize what we're talking about right now, whether it's virtue or anything else? And then, how do we find a teacher who can then help us to harmonize that? So, yeah, thanks. Thanks for that uh, perspective. I think it was very helpful. Adam, your thoughts?
3: Uh, I actually have a question that maybe you can help with. Firstly, I really appreciate how you how you brought in the manners and measure of all things background. Uh, to this measurement question of virtue that I hadn't made that connection at all. And my question about that is, does Socrates' belief in forms put him in opposition to the Protagoras' belief that man is the measure of all things? Like, is, is Socrates at his most fundamental ideas in opposition to that? How did he feel about man is the measure of all things statement?
0: Yeah, and that's a great question. Thank you. I think, yes, Socrates would say man is not the measure of things, which was the kind of the upshot of the Theotetus. And that's because while the forms are permanent and indivisible, man is constantly changing because the forms are in the realm of being, which is unchanging, unlimited. uh, But man... You know, we we have this temporary existence, and things in our world are always becoming. They're not being; they're becoming. And this is this is fundamentally, I think, what they're going to talk about. And I'll do this reading shortly uh, about this poem of Simonides. This difference between the word being and becoming, and I think that's precisely why he uses it here, because if man inhabits this realm of being that's constantly changing, and we know from the physics that everything physical is constantly changing. Our five perceptions are perceiving things that are never static; they're always in a changing state and always in a state that tends to entropy we know that from physics now so we have to make sense of this changing state of things whereas the forms are in the state of being which is unchanging and eternal now that state is accessible to us but that's accessible to the reason it's not accessible to the five senses it's accessible to the reason to our ability to reason uh, and that's where the forms come in we need to grasp those forms those permanent things those first principles before we can exercise our ability to measure but how can we measure anything precisely in a physical universe in which we know gurd's incompleteness theorems and heisenberg's uh, uncertainty principle govern right so we we can never have complete knowledge of anything so to say that man is the measure of all things there are limitations to our ability to measure inherently inherently i think so and maybe that's not a bad thing, because if, if any one of us had the absolute ability to measure anything perfectly, that person would be like a god. We don't want that to happen. I think we want to continue to be able to expand our limits, right? So um, yeah, well, thank you for the question. You know, that was a question, the question of whether uh, virtue is a form was a question that came up in our first session, and I think we need to deal with that question by the time we conclude this dialogue. So is virtue a form, is virtue a timeless thing, is virtue something that the gods designed and that we're meant to discover, or is virtue something that we are meant to work out and harmonize on our our own, maybe? So, great question, thank you. Eva, your thoughts, and then uh, Jose.
5: Thank you. I like the question, is everyone looking for a virtue? I, I never thought of that before. I think my answer would be I don't think everyone, every person is looking for virtue at all stages of their lives. Will everyone gain a virtue? Yeah, some kind. I think Hitler had virtue of his kind, so everyone has some kind of virtue. And I think it is less number of people who are actually looking For virtue. If you're looking for virtue, it means you are investing in that. If you invest yourself and dedicate yourself to a Buddhist temple, you do things accordingly, you plan things. And I think that's less number of people. More people, including teachers or educators or parents, they don't even realize that they are forming some kind of virtue for their own selves and for their students or their households I think intention and virtuous intelligence is pretty low and I just realized that today thank you
0: yeah I really like the way you brought that into you know the the question of is everyone looking for virtue and uh, you know, It reminds me of the example that you mentioned last time of the parents who want you to coach their children to be something that the parents want, which, you know, that's the virtue of the parents, but is that actually virtuous for the child? Uh, so we had that discussion last time. So I think your question about is everyone looking for virtue maybe ties to what Nuria just said in terms of, uh, you know, the, this distinction between right and wrong. And maybe it's actually a question, and we'll see this, I think, in the conclusion of the dialogue where uh, the statement is made that we are all looking for the good we're looking for something that we think is good we want to avoid the bad nobody deliberately goes out and wants bad results now you know that's different the way they judge things you mentioned hitler obviously he thought he was doing good but of course pretty universally concluded that what he was doing was monstrously bad but he thought it was good so maybe we are all driven somehow to look for the good. And then it's a question of what the good is. And if I look for something that's good for me, is it good for you? And if it's not good for you and I do it, uh, I'm hurting you. And then I should rethink what's good, right? It's not just good for me, but there has to be this harmony of good and bad because what I do has outcomes that affect other people. And what you do has outcomes that affect other people. So, uh, because we live in this society and we're trying to learn how to live together, uh, we need to understand the distinction between good and bad. If, if we're being driven to find the good, maybe that's a different way of looking at. it. So we're not looking for virtue, but we're looking for the good. So thank you for that question, Jose.
1: Your views. I just wanted to to express my my uh, my understanding, some understanding. We can we, we can debate that. Like, first of all, I, I think, my understanding is that the Protagoras, the dialogue is, uh, is an early dialogue of uh, Plato. So, uh, in the early dialogues, my understanding is that the views in these dialogues are the views of Socrates. In the later dialogues, they are the views of Plato. But right? the first dialogue is the views of Socrates. And Socrates, he he didn't have, I think he didn't have this vision of the forms those days. But the the main thing that he was uh, kind of uh, the, in disagreement with the sophists is that the sophists, they were relativist, subjectivist. So they will say that, uh, you know, things like in the Republic book one, that uh, justice is whatever is good for me. And, and uh, this is my concept of justice. But Socrates said, no, justice has to be something that is more like, a, that is good for everybody. So it's kind of an idea that, uh, the ideas of justice, at least justice, is something more universal, so more more fixed for everybody, but the sophists say, and this is one of the things that the protagoras, the man is mature of all things, is that everything is relative to, to the man. It's according, how do you think? This is good for you. And um, that, that that was one of the, the main uh, discussions with the, with the sophists.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, thanks. And, and I think that does seem to be the, the way that the sophist approaches virtue is that it's something that is relative uh, and not universal. And I think maybe Socrates might come out to that sort of conclusion too, uh, in that he doesn't say that there is a universal form of virtue. Um, Now, I don't know whether Socrates' views or Plato's views changed over time. I, I think I said before that I find very consistent through Plato the views that are expressed so I don't know whether it makes a difference whether to me it doesn't make a difference whether it's an early dialogue or a later one and I don't think that they even really know truly which order they were written in but the question remains you know is it a form is there some universal about virtue or is virtue a compound of things with relative limits and then if it's a thing with relative limits how do we measure those limits against each other uh, so yeah, I think that's a that's an important point to bring out that idea of relativity with virtue um, so yeah thanks for those great questions I wanted to there's a couple of other readings in here which I won't get a chance to cover in detail this is just uh, you know for example 334d to 335c this is this part about gravity and, and the importance of a teacher. If a teacher is going to teach virtue or anything else, they have to be able to teach um, to the ability of their students. So if a student doesn't understand long-winded things, then the teacher needs to be brief. Or if a student needs great uh, kind of elaboration uh, and explanation, then the teacher needs to be less brief. Um, so here Socrates is just trying to point out that he's he's asked his teacher, Protagoras, to be brief. And the teacher is having difficulty in conceding to that. So this is maybe just a little tangential problem with teaching, not necessarily just about virtue, but about anything at all. And I certainly know, I instructed a university course for 10 years. And so I I know that students each have different ways of learning. And so the teacher does need to understand those different ways and and to be able to make the subject matter work for a variety of different ways of learning. So these are kind of this, this discussion here about the... Uh, about the brevity and then and, and how the other sophists get involved. This part here from 337a to 337b, where Prodicus stands up and he says, you know, we ought to listen impartially, but not divide our attention equally. More should go to the wiser speaker and less to the more unlearned. That was an interesting thing because we'll see in the conclusion of this dialogue where Socrates talks about this need when we measure things, this need to apply weighting to what we think is the most important thing. And each one of us has a different way of weighting things. So here, Prodicus says, that that we should give more weighting to the wiser speaker and less to the uh, more unlearned. And then a question again is, you know, do we make that weighting correctly? Um, So again, if virtue is something that's undefined, and we're trying to know what it is or learn what it is, how do we weight that learning and so if virtue consists of parts like courage, wisdom, temperance, how do we weight those different parts? And surely the weighting would have to be based on some sort of measurement. So I just thought that was an interesting part to uh, to highlight there. Um, I'll read this part here towards the end of today's discussion because this goes into this poem of Simonides, and it can be a little bit technical in the sense that they're focusing just on specific words, but there's an approach here that Socrates is trying to use to to show that the teacher isn't always necessarily correct. And there's a very interesting thing that he does with the meaning of words, and he uses Prodicus to help him to show that Protagoras may not have the correct understanding of this poem. So Protagoras says, he starts, and I'll, I'll read this momentarily, he starts by saying that he thinks that poetry is the most important thing that People should understand. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't think it matters. I think it's just that, you know, this particular teacher has a belief that poetry is the best thing. And maybe, you know, they thought poetry, they thought a lot more of poetry back then than they do now. Regardless, whatever the teacher decides is the important thing, that's that's what the teacher needs to know. So so this starts off with Protagoras pronouncing the importance of poetry. So at 339A, Socrates says, so he began to ask questions something like this. I consider, Socrates, that the greatest part of a man's education is to be in command of poetry, by which I mean the ability to understand the words of the poets, to know when a poem is correctly composed and when not, and to know how to analyze a poem and to respond to questions about it. So my line of questioning now will concern the subject of our present discussion, namely virtue, but translated into the sphere of poetry. Now, Simonides somewhere says to Scopus, the son of Creon of Thessaly, and here's this bit of poem, For a man to become good is truly hard, in hands and feet and mind foursquare, blamelessly built. Do you know this lyric ode, or shall I recite it for you? Socrates replies, I told him there was no need, for I knew the poem, and it happened to be one to which I had given especially careful attention. Good, he said. So do you think it's well made or not? Very well made. And do you think it's well made if the poet contradicts himself? No. Take a better look, then. As I've said, I'm already familiar enough with it. Then you must know that at some later point in the ode, he says, Nor is Pittacus's proverb in tune, however wise a man he was, hard it is to be good, he said. You do recognize that both these things are said by the same person? I do. Well, do you think that the latter is consistent with the former? It seems so to me, I said. <laughs> but as I said it, I was afraid I, he had a point there. Doesn't it seem to you? how can anyone who says both these things be consistent? First, he asserts himself that it is hard for a man truly to become good. And then, a little further on in his poem, he forgets and criticizes Pitticus for saying the same thing as he did, that it is hard for a man to be good, and refuses to accept from him the same thing that he said himself. And yet, when he criticizes him for saying the same thing as himself, he obviously criticizes himself as well. So either the earlier or the later must not be right. Protagoras got a noisy round of applause for this speech. At first I felt as if I'd been hit by a good boxer. Everything went black and I was reeling from Protagoras's oratory and the other's clamor. Then to tell you the truth, to stall for time to consider what the poet meant. I turned to Prodicus and said, calling on him, Prodicus, I said, Simonides was from your hometown, wasn't he? It's your duty to come to the man's rescue. So I don't mind calling you for help. Just as Homer says commander called Samoas to help him when he was besieged by Achilles. And then he quotes a little bit from uh, Homer's Iliad. Dear brother, let's buck this hero's strength together. He continues, so also do I summon your aid, lest to our dismay Protagoras destroy Simonides. But really, Prodicus, Simonides rehabilitation does require your special art by which you distinguish wanting from desiring and make all the other fine distinctions that you did just a while ago. So tell me if you agree with me, because it's not clear to me that Simonides does in fact contradict himself. Just give us your offhand opinion are becoming and being the same or different. Good heavens, different. All right, now, in the first passage, Simonides declared as his own opinion that it is hard for a man truly to become good. That's right, Prodicus said. Then he criticizes Pitticus not for saying the same thing as himself, as Protagoras thinks, but for saying something different. Because Pitticus did not say that it is hard to become good, as Simonides said, but to be good. As Prodicus here says, Being and becoming are not the same thing, Protagoras. And if being is not the same as becoming, Simonides does not contradict himself. Perhaps Prodicus and many others might agree with Hesiod that it is difficult to become good. And here he goes on to quote Hesiod's works and days. He says, the gods put goodness where we have to sweat to get at her. But once you reach the top, she's as easy to have as she was hard at first. So I kind of just ended the reading at that point, but they go on then to discuss the meaning of the word hard. Protagoras claims that it is the word hard, which constitutes the contradiction. So he starts by saying um, that Simonides contradicted himself, but didn't make that distinction between becoming and being, which in terms of Plato's realm, becoming and being are very different things. But then Protagoras then goes on to say, well, It's the word hard that's really different between those two parts. And then Socrates goes on to ask Prodicus what the interpretation of the word hard is from his particular town. And then this is again where this theme of the foreigner comes in. So here's Protagoras as a foreigner, not from either Athens or from Prodicus's hometown, trying to interpret the word hard used by somebody from Prodicus's hometown, And we find later on, and we won't have time to get into that reading today, but we find later on that Prodicus says, no, there's actually, it's a different meaning, Protagoras, than you thought the word hard. So I think here, you know, maybe Protagoras is an example of a teacher who thinks that he knows something, and he presents it in a very convincing way. But maybe there's greater depth to what is actually behind that knowledge. And maybe he doesn't really fully understand the whole context of what he's talking about. You know, for example, um, Socrates said at 343D, after observing the characteristic style of ancient philosophy was laconic brevity. So when Simonides wrote this, Simonides was using laconic brevity, which Protagoras, you know, maybe that's a bit of irony, didn't understand. Uh, And so Protagoras didn't pick up the meaning of what Simonides was really trying to write. And and so Socrates says, uh, 343b, that Simonides composed this poem as a deliberate attack on the maxim of which he wrote. So he wasn't writing it to support, he was writing it to attack. So it was actually quite a different intention. So they're using this poetry, not, again, because it's in itself conclusive, you know, like if this was a court case, this poem would not be conclusive evidence against Protagoras. But it's, I think, being used as an example that understanding words, and maybe to go back to what Nuria said earlier, understanding words is important, especially when words are subjective. And we have a teacher who claims that he understands the meaning of words more, more absolutely than the words actually were written. Uh, at least, At least the words are subject to interpretation. Whether Socrates is right, whether Prodicus is right in what he tells Socrates, we don't know. But at least we know here that there is some subjectivity and that the teacher has not given scope or range for that subjectivity. So that's kind of, you know, in a nutshell, how I would summarize that whole section. It goes on for a while. It's it's a little bit more difficult to read just because it's so specifically hinges on uh, words in that poem which we don't we don't know that poem anymore so but what are the the general views on this in terms of the approach to teaching and the approach to understanding things that were composed at different times and maybe this gets into this time question and the relativity of virtue over time you know if, if Simonides wrote the poem a long time before Plato and Protagoras talked about it, or sorry, a long time before Socrates and Protagoras talked about it, is either Socrates or Protagoras or Prodicus who's brought in to interpret, are any of them capable of sorting out this subjectivity? And then what does that say about our ability to interpret and teach subjective words like virtue? It's a bit of a difficult argument for sure. I think we'll see in the conclusion next time, in two weeks, where they talk about the need to understand how things work out over time. And so to maybe to gauge anything at one particular time is problematic without understanding the consequences of time in general. And so virtue, you know, again, could be one thing at one time for a particular society. At the same time for another society, it could be something different. And then it shifts over time. And so then we're left again with the question, is anybody really capable of teaching these sorts of things over time, whether it's virtue, whether it's words of a poem, how do we get around this time problem where things change over time? We live in this realm of becoming where everything in our perception, uh, in our behavior, everything changes. You know, our societies are not static. They're dynamic, especially now where people are moving all across the world and we're connecting across the world using platforms like this that we are today. We're changing each other as we're talking, and so nothing's static. And so how does the art of teaching deal with something that's not static over time and something that's actually quite contentious, like virtue? Because we judge each other based on virtue, maybe. Any thoughts on that? I mean, do we think that virtue is still teachable as, as such? If it is teachable, to what limits is it? to be taught? How are the teachers to be taught? Steve?
6: My opinion's the same. It's definitely teachable, just like any other topic. And You do the best you can. You, you try and teach your kids to be uh, good people. You try to give them the tools to do it. Who's uh, qualified to be a parent? You know, you just are. You're, you're a parent and, and you do the best you can. If you're a teacher, and you send your kids to the schools, you know, who's most qualified to teach poetry? It's, you know, you just you do the best you can and uh, try and learn from it. And, uh, you know, like you say, entropy is just the way of the universe. And, you know, you you have a limited time as an organism, you know, in the, the forms of how we evolved and our, how we adapted. The ones that proved successful were the ones that continued. The ones that were not successful or didn't continue. So if we are unsuccessful in coming to deal with how we deal with each other, you know, then it's a, there's a good likelihood that we could be wiped off the earth. But then the universe would keep on. You know, if we're successful, we could continue to live longer. Say, say even if it's uh, 10,000 years or 100,000 years, but eventually we'd be wiped. The earth is going to be destroyed. So uh, it's just basically, yeah, it's uh, you do the best you can and uh, in- enjoy the time that you have to be alive.
0: And that's fair. And and so maybe a follow-up question to that then is how, you know, given how young Hippocrates was so excited to meet Protagoras at the outset of this style, like he raced, in, he raced to Socrates' house, Socrates wasn't even out of bed yet. And uh, he says, you know, The great Protagoras is in town. I need to see him, but I don't have the money to see him. So now maybe Protagoras would have been a good expenditure investment of of money. But so if it's a question of doing the best that we can, is there anything that we can do to prevent harm, either economic or moral, coming to susceptible young people From people who claim that they can teach something that they don't know the limits of. So, I'm not talking about Protagoras here. I'm just talking about other teachers, and we can think of sophists now or people who claim to have knowledge now who actually teach things that are dangerous. And I guess, you know, if it's a question of doing the best that we can, are there any sort of guardrails that we can put in place to prevent harm, especially to the susceptible young? You know, to those of us who maybe have more experience in life, we can be more attuned to the dangers of some of these teachers, but the susceptible young, how do we how do we help them, especially if they don't have guidance? And you know, at the beginning, recall that uh, that Socrates told Hippocrates that, you know, one of the things he should do before going to a teacher is at least consult with the people who care about Hippocrates because they could give some guidance. But in the case of Hippocrates, he didn't go to the his people who cared about him. he was so eager to see this, The Sophist. So, are there any kind of guardrails that we can put in place? Anybody on that, or is the potential benefit of this teaching great enough that we should simply let it go and let it play out as it will?
1: Jose, yes, yes. Well, probably we can. It's a topic to to discussion, but we can. It's not that uh, Plato says that in other dialogue that the. The way to, nail, to know to get knowledge is by recollection, and so being so, it seems that uh, he's saying that uh, virtue cannot be taught. You you only learn that by recollection, and and now this is another thing that you mentioned before is that the goal of dialectic is to get the first principles, and as well, he said that you can do recollection by dialectic. So the dialectic serves you to, to recollection and because the first principles, they come from, from the forms. and So based on that, can we kind of say that Plato assumes that virtue cannot be taught, has to be, that knowledge has to be gained only by recollection and by dialectic? Hmm.
0: It's a very interesting and good question. So in the Mino, Socrates says, all knowledge is recollection. And then he says that in a few other dialogues as well. So recollection, if we recall from the philobus, is what the soul does when it's not together with the body. So the recollection, the body has memory, the physical body has memory. And so the soul experiences things together with the body. And so that's at the act of memory. But recollection is what the soul does later when it recalls that earlier event, And it's doing that recollection without the benefit of data input from the body. So Socrates said in the Mino that all knowledge is recollection. It's the way that the soul learns, I think, is is what he's saying. It's that, that this kind of this resonance in the soul is what causes this recollection. And so maybe this is then a question of this harmony that the soul needs to find in its recollection in terms of determining what virtue is or how to act virtuously. Um, and this recollection is understanding the sequence of cause and events over time, when the soul doesn't have the benefit of things happening right at that particular moment, but it, the soul is reflecting back on time to see how things actually played out in order to determine its next action. So that's the way I would see recollection fitting into this, but I, I really appreciate the question. I think it's it's an important one, especially since it ties to the Mino, which is also about virtue.
1: So. Yeah, but uh, you, you mentioned this. I, I thought the recollection is, you know, when we die, the the soul it goes to. Well, there is a, you know, in the Timaeus, I think there is a whole journey of the soul that goes and and it goes to a place where the forms are. So the the soul he knows the like the soul knows the forms, yeah. but now when you are born and the soul enters to the body, because of some something like that, at the moment of. Uh, of giving birth, there is a shock, and, and like you forget everything, the soul forgets everything. Yeah. But this knowledge is kind of dormant there. This knowledge that is dormant can be kind of bringing back by recollection. And recollection is by like questions and answers, that this is dialectic. Right.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think what you're talking about is the myth of error at the end of the Republic. I love that myth where Ur dies in battle and then he comes back to life and he's able to recall actually what happened when his soul was on the, I think it was called the plane of souls. And then before he was brought back to life, he was made to drink from the fountain of forgetfulness. This goes to Plato's view about the soul never dies. The soul always continues. The soul never dies. The body dies, but the soul doesn't. So the soul experiences things without the body and it experiences things without the body both during the particular lifetime but also in its other lifetimes. You know, that the, the universe has a soul is, is what was said in the Philippus. And that's where our souls come from. Uh, so that's contentious. I think a lot of people would disagree with that. But, you know, this idea that if the soul never dies, then the knowledge that it had never dies either. We can forget it, but then we have to recall it. And somehow... The universe is built in a way that this data, this knowledge, is never lost. It has nowhere else to go. It stays in the universe. In the physics of the law of conservation of, of information, it has to stay in the universe. There's no other place for it to go. And the soul, because it has access to the realm of being, this eternal realm of being, through the faculty of reason, is able to exercise recollection. And whether it knows that it's recalling a specific event that happened, you know, 600 lives ago, or an event that happened a year ago during its own lifetime i'm not sure i think you know it could do either i think that's his concept of the soul
1: which we can dispute Eva.
5: thanks well we don't have to go to different lives to for me understand that there is a source of in the person you could name it anything probably for me it's soul that something, there is a memory, or something is there. Like when I look at a photo of myself, I was seven years old. I look different. I remember that time, that body doesn't, doesn't belong to me anymore. But I find I have a memory, and where is that memory? Like the brain, or uh, I think even in this life format, Personally, I have the proof that there's a source of a person that stays there and the material part could change. And there is a connection between that material and energy or soul part. Yeah, just wanted to share about that.
0: Yeah, definitely the material part is always changing. You know, the cells in our bodies are always dying. They're being regenerated. Everything changed. Memory cannot be stored in those physical pieces. The memory has to be stored somewhere else other than in the physical parts. Uh, So the memory is metaphysical, I would say. And that's where the soul has access because that's the realm of the soul. The soul is invisible. The soul is not visible. The visible body only has access to the realm of becoming. The data in that realm of becoming is only accessible to the physical. The data that's in the realm of being, the eternal realm of data, that's accessible to the reason, which is the power of the human soul.
5: Yeah. Another thing, I, I know you're interested in such things too. So if there's a data about me somewhere, not under my control. So if I have a source somewhere, everyone has that too. So that brings us to a, again, invisible unseen collective consciousness of the humanity maybe which is so huge and it's it's sometimes easy just to think things about only myself but then when you consider if it applies to me it applies to everything then things change uh personally again i cannot prove any of this in the scientific way but I sense a divine and uh, eternal plan of options for human being in a way. Again, I, I I'm not trying to prove anything. I cannot prove any of this at some platforms. but I don't have to prove to believe it too.
0: Right. And a good point, you know in the the Republic, the soul is divided into three parts: appetite, spirit and and reason. Which moderates uh, the other two parts, and the divided line in the Republic, belief is definitely a stage in that divided line, and that's that's important to our function is that we have beliefs and then we test those beliefs, which I think is what Socrates is trying to do here with virtue is to test beliefs before arriving at any conclusions on them. So we have that ability. You know, when you say scientific proof, well, how does the scientific method deal with proving something that is not accessible to the five senses? something that is not subject to the energy of the universe which is expressed in light or mass we have no instruments that are able to see such a thing as the soul and yet we know it exists it's in us right so our proof is that it's in us but we can't use any instruments to measure it so then we think well it's not scientific but is it not scientific to know that it's in us and so maybe we need to change our approach to the scientific method with respect to the invisible, which is the soul. Um, so that's just one thing I would say. And then this divine source, I think, again, it's what, what Plato was saying in the philobus that the universe itself has a soul, because where do we get our souls from, if not from the universe? Like, if we have souls, does that make us more than the universe? If the universe doesn't have a soul and we have something that the universe doesn't, like, is that possible? right so if we have a soul and we are part of the universe then the universe i think has to have a soul like i'd like to hear an argument against that but i think that's what he's saying in the syllabus. so you know it, maybe this that's this collective kind of soul idea that you were talking about ava and you know whether we use words like divine some people think well that means that there's another being that's determining things in advance for us which i would Say no. I think if the universe has a soul, that doesn't mean that that soul is lording it over our souls. I think it's what's all part. We're all part of the same system, and maybe it's a question of harmonizing. Maybe it's a question of harmonizing. So, thank you very much for that. I think it was uh, it was a good point. I think that's you know that to the extent that our souls contain data, the record of Eva, the record of James, the record of Adam, all of these things are not lost. When our bodies disappear, they're not lost. They have nowhere to go except the universe. The universe is this data storage device, physical data as well as metaphysical soul data. So I think uh, that that's the way I would see it.
5: Well, this will be an easier conversation mm-hmm. if we could really get out of the name factor of the belief systems and only could talk with one language or one systems of being. But I think we'll have to find ways to reason all this with our own belief systems that we choose to follow. I think the problem comes up like when we are not able to communicate with each other and we think that we are following different paths. I mean, for me, they're all just one path in a way, but... Uh, when we want to really use our own cultural or our own spiritual belief systems at every level, I think that's when things get complicated.
0: Absolutely. And that's and that common language or that common ground that we're looking for. And to the extent that we think that maybe our souls are all somehow connected, maybe that's a way of thinking about finding a common ground is knowing that that's inside of us and we just need to bring it out. And certainly uh, they, they, finding the, the common ground is this whole exercise of dialectic, I think that we've been going through, this discussion that we've been having, and maybe the common language is some sort of logic. I think I'm seeing very consistent logic here in Plato. And so this is this is why I, I love Plato. And uh, I, I think there's so much that we can learn, even just from going through these exercises, whether or not we believe everything he says, but I think there's something important in our combined experience, in our individual and combined experience on these uh, on these sessions. So with that, I will say, actually, we have run over time um, and I didn't realize we were getting that close to it, but we have actually run over time. So I will invite everybody. I hope we'll come back in two weeks to finish off the Protagoras and see what happens at the end. I I, I like the ending. I reread it uh, this morning and new things popped out at me that I hadn't thought of before. So I think it's it, it'll be very interesting to see how we work the theme of time into this whole conclusion. And hopefully we can find some relevance in this dialogue. And hopefully it's not just some ancient take on virtue that's not relevant to today. And I, I really hope that we'll find some modern, actually an important modern, uh, relevance to this. So thank you all for having this great discussion. For those who didn't have a chance to listen to our previous episode, it's now posted on all the popular podcasting platforms. And uh, I really enjoyed listening to it several times. So that's great. And we'll post this one in, uh, in about two weeks. And I, I do look forward to our last session on the Protagoras. And so I'll end the recording now. But uh, as always, invite anybody who wants to stay online for a casual, unrecorded half-hour session on the philosophy in general or Plato or anything that you want to discuss. So I'll stop the recording now with, again, thanks for everybody for attending and I uh, hope to see you in
3: two weeks.